0: This episode of Speaking of Bitcoin on the Coindesk Podcast Network is brought to you by Nexo.io.
1: Exchanges are finding themselves in this very weird interface between traditional finance regulation and the brave new world of crypto. And while being at that interface is incredibly profitable, it's also just a morass of complications and headaches.
2: Regulators, the quintessential bureaucrats whose job it nominally is to be neutral arbiters, helping the public craft and then enforcing rules to keep the playing field level while protecting consumers, are the topic of today's show, specifically the Securities and Exchange Commission, better known as the SEC. With a mandate to regulate investment contracts, more commonly known as securities, shares, or equity, they've long had their sights on regulating portions of the cryptocurrency ecosystem. But before that, introductions. My name is Adam E. Levine, and this is Speaking of Bitcoin. This time, as always, I'm joined by the other host of the show, Dr. Stephanie Murphy. Hi. And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hello. Jonathan is out this week. So, folks, let's start with the balance sheet, or at least the balance sheets of public companies. Andreas, please lead us into this one.
1: About a week ago, the SEC announced that crypto companies in the U.S., specifically publicly listed crypto companies, which, as far as I know, is really mostly Coinbase at this moment, will have to take their customers' balances, the custodial assets that they hold on behalf of customers, and add those to their balance sheets, which basically means that, same with banks, customer deposits that are ultimately owed to the customers are liabilities, And reserves that are not owed to the customers are assets on the balance sheet. Now, this is going to have an obvious and immediate effect of significantly increasing the balance sheets. Just uh, for comparison, Coinbase's balance sheet at the moment is $21 billion. And the customer assets they have are $287 billion in deposits. (laughs) So that's more than 10 times increase in the balance sheet. Of course, you know, a lot of that's liabilities with the corresponding assets. So it's going to balance out (laughs) balance sheet, get it. But it's going to certainly increase their balance sheet. However, and this is the real issue that may arise. Obviously, these assets need to be marked to their value in dollars which means that volatility in cryptocurrencies is going to translate directly to balance sheet volatility, something that another publicly listed company that doesn't have custodial assets but has Bitcoin as a reserve asset, MicroStrategy, discovered recently when the SEC told them they had to do the same, meaning list their reserve Bitcoin on their balance sheet, and they had the single biggest one-day drop in their stock price. Because of volatility in Bitcoin.
0: So the stock dropped because the balance sheet appeared to be volatile and the investors didn't like that or why?
1: The stock dropped because in their quarterly report, they had to write down billions of dollars in the last quarter due to the recent drop in the Bitcoin price. And since they had to show that as a reduction in their reserves... They tried to keep it off their balance sheet. The SEC disagreed, said they had to have it on the balance sheet. And as a result, when it did appear as a, I think it was something like a 50% drop. Yeah, they ended up suffering a pretty big drop in their stock price as a result. Now, both Bitcoin and the MicroStrategy stock bounced back. After that. But that's a perfect example of volatility in the underlying asset feeding into volatility on your balance sheet, which gets reported quarterly, which looks like something big happened in your balance sheet, although it didn't in Bitcoin terms, and results then in the markets reacting.
0: But the thing I don't understand is like people who own shares of MicroStrategy didn't understand that this was just an appearance of the company losing value. Because of that, they had to write down this drop in Bitcoin price and it affected their balance sheet or.
1: I mean, yeah, who knows? Part of it could be that they didn't understand. Part of it could be that they did understand. And they said, well, you elected to put all of this money into a volatile asset in your company reserves. And when that drops, well, the value of your company drops because you have lower reserves.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. And there's really no way to separate it out and get into the mindset.
1: Yeah. And then there's algorithmic trading where there aren't any people
0: to understand. Yeah, there's no mindset. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Right. It's a neural network that went, "Ooh, ding, kabow. (laughs) So, yeah. So what happened to microstrategy could very easily happen to other publicly listed crypto companies. And of course, Coinbase is a prime example of that, where... Unlike MicroStrategy, they didn't choose to invest their reserves in cryptocurrency. And effectively, they probably don't keep all of their reserves in cryptocurrency. But now, because their customer deposits are going to be reflected, they're going to get the corresponding volatility feed through. Ironically, this comes at the same time that many of the large exchanges in the United States are repeatedly telling their customers to not use them as wallets and to withdraw their money. My slogan, not your keys, not your coins, has been uttered more than once by both the CEO of Coinbase and the CEO of Kraken. (laughs) Did you ever think that would happen?
0: (laughs) (laughs) You were saying in the private chat before the show that you're changing it slightly to call it their keys, their coins. And (laughs) that is confirmed by the SEC now.
1: Yes, this is the new SEC policy, their keys, their coins. Yeah, exactly. I wish the SEC would have the sense of humor to name the policy change, their keys, their coins.
0: I don't think they are known for having a sense of humor.
1: (laughs) No, probably not. Of course not. So it is surprising. It is surprising. I think it's also healthy for the industry. You know, at the end of the day, I think for most exchanges, They make their money from trading. They don't make their money from wallet transactions. Arguably, they even lose money from wallet transactions because in many cases they have to absorb the fees.
0: And it's the cost of securing all those coins that they're custodying.
1: It's a huge security cost and it increases at a rate like you can't increase security at the same rate that the deposits increase. It's not possible to say I'm going to have a thousand times better security because I have a thousand times more deposits than I did before. Because there is no 1,000 times better security to be had. So it's a headache, right? And they don't make any money off it. At least I don't think they do. It's not like these are assets that deliver dividends or anything like that. They continue to be liabilities because they owe them back to customers. So at the end of the day, you know, it's very rational for them not to want to be wallets. They want to be exchanges. That's where the money is. And encouraging their customers to withdraw is fantastic. Of course... You know, that causes other problems because withdrawals come with regulatory obligations. So it's a very interesting mess.
0: What are the regulatory obligations with withdrawals? Just that they have to
1: cover it? Well, no, the travel rule is the biggest one now because more and more countries are imposing this requirement that when a customer withdraws or uses a wallet from an exchange, that the exchange verifies that the destination of those funds belong to someone identified. Either the customer themselves, in which case you need to do some kind of proof of address ownership or identifying the actual recipient if they're using it as a wallet. And because they can impose these regulations on exchanges because they're regulated entities and not, you know, self-custody wallets, that's exactly where they apply them. So the the FATF's travel rule is beginning to bite, especially in Europe. And we're going to see the same thing worldwide. It's interesting. We predicted this, of course, but exchanges are finding themselves in this very weird interface between traditional finance and regulation and the brave new world of crypto. And while being at that interface is incredibly profitable, it's also just a morass of
2: complications and headaches. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, these are the kind of bottleneck points, right? So on the one hand, it means that you can make a lot of money because everybody is sort of forced to go through one of these things one way or the other, right? But on the other hand, it again, makes you vulnerable as something that's very attractive as a choke point where as a regulator, you look at that and you say, aha, I can deploy the same amount of sort of effort here, but I can get an outsized return relative to other areas. You know, one thing that really jumped out at me about this story from the Business Insider story on it. Quote, the guidelines contrast with those for brokerages which don't have to put customer assets on their books. The SEC pointed to particular risks involved with crypto assets and platforms for taking a different approach. So this is actually not the really standard way. Like
1: it is standard for banks but not brokerages and that's very interesting.
2: Yeah, it's an interesting distinction and again, we kind of see this behavior over and over again. It feels like where pick which side. Are you a bank today or are you a brokerage today, right? Are you an entity that's dealing with customers who are using you as an interface, but ultimately you're not responsible as their counterparty? Or are you actually sort of, again, the bank in all of this? I mean, like, I'm not really sure how I feel about all of that. I feel like these trading platforms, to the extent that they perform the same function, it feels like you would want consistent rules across them. And it also brings up kind of interesting questions in terms of like a platform like eToro is both. It's a traditional brokerage on the one side and it's a crypto platform that does custodying on the other side. So when you're talking about these kind of bigger players out there, you know, like does it make sense to regulate these like banks, which have a lot of the same dynamics, frankly, as brokerages, which is that. Ultimately, they're not the ones who are responsible for holding these funds. There's insurance. There's kind of all of these other layers where if I continued reading this quote from MarketWatch, you know, that would be sort of the rationale that the SEC is giving is that cryptocurrency represents these unique types of risks that are unknown in the space. And therefore, we're applying this higher layer of scrutiny to it. But does that make sense to you? It doesn't make sense.
1: I think we've talked about this in the form of a prophecy in the past, which is fairly obvious. And this is that wherever possible, these entities will get the worst of both worlds, the least common denominator, the most onerous regulation. If you have buckets A and B, and A has the really shitty rules, that's the one we're going to put you in. That's the problem with being on the interface. The regulators will almost instinctively go for the most conservative approach in treating this new unknown thing. So. Crypto banks get the worst regulations of banks and the worst risks of crypto together. And we're going to see that continuing. So it's going to be a very difficult industry to exist in in the long run. And, you know, the other aspect of this that I think is even more worrisome is that when you operate in this kind of domain, you are at the mercy of regulators, meaning that one regulation, one day, Can end your business. Now, in the US, where there's political power of capital, that's not so easy to do. But let's look at what happened less than two weeks ago in India. They've now passed a law where every single transaction involving cryptocurrency is now treated as income and taxed at 30%. Overnight, the exchange market died literally overnight. They debated, they argued. The government passed the rule, they started enforcing it, and the exchange volumes declined by 99% in one day, and they will remain there. That market is dead. And it's dead because one day a bureaucrat decided to do this, and there is absolutely no due process. And in that environment, there is no real political power for capital. So you build a business, and then one day someone pulls the rug.
0: Wow. That is a pretty extreme example of what happened in India. But I was also thinking when you were talking about this, Andreas, there have been these interest yielding accounts where you can keep crypto in a platform and then get paid interest on it in kind, I guess, like earn interest products. And, uh, recently the SEC also said that those type of products are not okay in the US that any company that offers those have to register as a security as they're, they're offering a crypto security and. I mean, a lot of them have just shut down <laughs> to US customers anyway.
2: Yeah. It's not even just the SEC. The state regulators have also been really on those. This is kind of beyond the scope of today's episode. There are some nuanced arguments that kind of go into that. That might warrant a conversation unto itself. But yeah, it definitely <laughs> if you're if you're presenting a target that's out there right now, the regulators are hunting for you, it seems like.
0: Uh yeah. I mean, I'd be interested in talking about that at some point, maybe because. I followed some of the, you know, discussion of users of the platforms on that subject. And, you know, people are really disappointed. It's hard to find anything that produces a yield these days. At least it beats inflation. (laughs) That beats inflation. Yeah.
1: It's no longer a discussion of whether we can have a level playing field. The issue in this industry is that when you wake up in the morning, you're like, is the playing field still there or did it get yanked yesterday?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of a wonder there are any crypto banks or crypto companies at all. I know they're probably getting fewer and fewer as time goes on and the regulatory hills get steeper and steeper to climb. But I mean, I guess it just shows that despite all the headaches, crypto is still cool and people still want it, want to use it. Looking for ways to step up your crypto game? Then go with Nexo. For starters, you get free crypto for each purchase or swap. How about earning guaranteed yields, up to 17% paid out daily, ideal for you hardcore hodlers. You don't even need to sell, instead, borrow instant cash against your assets. Get the most out of your crypto with Nexo at Nexo.io, that's N-E-X-O dot I-O.
2: You know, Stephanie. You just reminded me of a comment that Janet Yellen, currently Treasury Secretary and former Fed official, made recently, which was something along the lines of, we want to create a regulatory environment that can support innovation within crypto. And this is a funny statement because, of course, regulatory environments, by definition, don't support innovation because effectively you have rules that come in and that then raise the cost of doing innovation, right? Innovation is inherently kind of like a small scale, probably going to fail, very expensive startup type activity. And when you apply regulations to that, really what you're doing is you're making it so that the cost in order to participate, the cost to be compliant goes up significantly, right? So for a company like Coinbase, like this is kind of annoying to them, but I mean, they have a whole department that's responsible for complying with these types of things. And so, paradoxically, what you find is that it's not the big companies that are being hurt by this. It's the little companies that haven't yet gotten to that point, and which, in all likelihood, won't get to that point or are less likely to get to that point because the regulatory environment makes it more difficult for them to compete. And in fact, helps the kind of big companies that are out there to entrench themselves. It's why, when you look at miners today, there's been this big push from publicly traded miners to get rules in place. And, you know, there were recent sort of green compliance and disclosure regulations that many of the publicly traded miners are very supportive of because, again, they have the kind of systems in place. They have the money to do that type of compliance, whereas somebody who's just starting a mining operation in all likelihood won't.
0: Or doing something creative like using excess natural gas to convert to a Bitcoin miner.
2: Well, again, BP can do it, right? Like the big companies that are out there, but like the little startups that are figuring out what's the next opportunity that's like the flaring thing, right? Like they don't have that luxury. And so it's just, again, you know, it's like we want to help, but only within the confines of the incredibly rigid, ill-fitting rules that we've decided are the correct ones in which to the extent that you disagree with them, we'll just go the hell away.
1: Yeah, I think the bigger picture is that over the long term, what this does is it distorts the competitive environment to the point where the companies that survive in this space are not companies that serve customers, but companies that are really good at playing the game, really good at playing the regulatory game and fitting in the rules and developing enough regulatory responsiveness in order to satisfy the regulators. So ultimately... These companies are competing for who will please the regulator most, not who's going to serve the customer the most. Then because the innovation is squeezed out, the products don't differentiate. The products become absolutely uniform. You offer the thing that you can offer within these rules, which is the same thing that everyone else can offer within these rules. And then you end up with an industry that effectively has no competition. At that point, the customer finds themselves in a situation where, okay, there are four banks, effectively, they might have some additional brand names, but there's still four banks. You know, you can call yourself Ally, but we still know you're owned by one of the big ones. There are four banks and they're all shit and they all offer the exact same crappy product. And in a few places every now and then, a neobank sneaks in and tries to make something good. If they get big, they end up, having the innovation squeezed out of them until eventually they get bought by one of the big banks, et cetera, et cetera. Now, this is exactly what's going to happen in crypto. There won't be, you know, essentially any difference between this exchange and that exchange. You pick the exchange that's in your area, your jurisdiction, because that's the only one that you can get verified in. And then once you've picked that exchange, the product you get is the same one that they have at all of the other exchanges because it's the maximal product that is allowed under the regulations. And your exchange does that product because they're good at pleasing the regulators and they don't give a flying f**k about you as a customer because they don't need to win your custom. You don't have anywhere to go. And if you go to the other people, they're just as bad anyway. So there's no point in leaving.
0: It's a real captive audience. Yeah.
1: Right. That's the real problem here. It's not just that it kills innovation, it's that it kills competition. And ultimately, you end up with one uniform product and you get to choose which one of the three oligopolists you want to play with.
2: Okay, okay. I got one more example around this that you've made me think about, and which is, again, another point of frustration with these types of systems. It's not talking about the SEC. This is actually talking about the Federal Reserve. So again, we've been talking about how banks you know, are treated under certain conditions. Well, a couple of years ago, Caitlin Long, along with sort of the Wyoming legislature, put together a piece of law that enabled the creation of what are called special purpose depository institutions. And this is a special type of bank that when you deposit assets into it, you still retain ownership of the assets. We've talked about this in previous episodes, and the analogy here is that rather than it becoming a liability of the bank. Instead, it's a bailment, which is effectively what happens when you give your car keys to a valet. The valet doesn't gain ownership of your car and it's not a liability that you have against him. He can just drive your car to the place to park it. And that's pretty much the extent of the responsibility and also of the ability to manipulate that asset that he has. So these are, in theory, much, much safer than banks because they don't lend out or use reserves against customer assets and they don't hold them as liabilities on their balance sheet. And so this is something that was passed along in Wyoming some years back at this point. And there are two banks at least that have been attempting to make it through the process such that they can actually start offering services to end users. One of them is Avanti, which is the project that Caitlin is directly involved with in one way or another. And the other is a banking subsidiary of the large exchange Kraken. And I remember reading, I think it was more than a year ago at this point, this new set of rules that the Federal Reserve, who regulates banks at kind of a national level, came out with where they were providing this list of potential reasons why they would not grant a bank access to the Federal Reserve system, right? To the Fed wire system and the kind of plumbing that the dollar denominated, you know, financial system actually operates on and which banks very much do have access to in order to do the fundamental business of banking. And I remember going through the list and reading item after item after item after item of, you know, some of them were well thought out and some of them seemed like they were completely arbitrary. And then at the bottom of this very long document, it talked about how, but actually, the answers to those questions don't matter. If the Federal Reserve feels like, for whatever reason, the particular institution presents some kind of risk in one of many, many different categories, then they can just choose to decline to either grant the license or just simply choose to decline to respond at all to the bank that was applying for this type of thing. So you can actually do everything right, follow all of the rules and meet all of the requirements, and they can still just arbitrarily decide That, no, you actually are out just because we don't like you. And here's the list of reasons that we don't have to back up that we can use in order to justify this decision and say that this was a fair process. So, again, like, you know, we've been waiting at this point years for this type of institution, which would be much more friendly to crypto assets and be able to treat them in a much more, you know, kind of appropriate way, given the characteristics of cryptocurrency assets And yet we are still waiting to see those first players go through. And it's a completely arbitrary time frame. Hey, hey, where'd my playing field go? I swear I left it here. Last night, it was right here. Okay, and that's it for this episode of Speaking of Bitcoin. Today's show featured Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, and myself, Adam B. Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and Gertie Beats with editing by Jonas. If you have any questions or comments, you can send me an email at adam at speakingofbitcoin.show. And thanks for
0: listening.